Well, I'm very excited today because I have one of my heroes here, uh, Branko Milanovic, who is uh, a, a global guru on inequality. Unfortunately, he is both tired because he's had a knackering week in London and very distracted by Tandikam Kandaluri's <laughs> amazing library, which we're, we're in a sh an office I share with Tandika, and he's got phenomenal bookshelves. So I'm going to have to try and make him concentrate and focus on... Uh, this podcast. So welcome, Branko. Well, thank you very much, Duncan. I will be totally focused. Totally. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, um, we're going to get on to your new book, but I wanted to yes. just talk about inequality in general. So That's I first came across you, I don't know, about 10, 15 years ago yeah. as this kind of strange man in the bowels of the World Bank, mm -hmm. who was the only person in the world, apart from Tony Atkinson, who seemed to be working on inequality. Fast forward to today, just talk about what it's been like being the inequality guru at a time when your issue suddenly becomes global. Well, I was not a guru then, you know, I was, as you said, in a bowel of an institution that actually had access to very good database and I would not have been able to do what I've done without the World Bank. On the other hand, it's also an institution that, to be maybe more blunt than I should be, really didn't care about inequality. You know, inequality as a term <clears throat> did not practically exist. Even when Francois Bourguignon, who had also been working obviously on inequality for a long time, became the vice president of the World Bank, he tried a little bit to introduce the term, and actually there was the idea that there should be World Bank inequality reports for individual countries, the same way that there are poverty reports. Well, it went nowhere, because even the term inequality, as I said, was really sort of... Uh, it was not a kosher term, you know. So how come the World Bank let you just get on with it? You see, that's what actually, I mean, many, that's a good question that you're asking, because actually I was thinking of writing a blog one day about that. Uh, the World Bank is not in a hierarchical institution the way that the fund is. And I was in the research department. So you actually have really quite a wide degree of freedom on what you want to do. And that degree of freedom becomes uh, wider and wider if you're willing to somewhat submerge your own vanity, so don't participate too much in what the bank is doing, what are the flagship projects, you know, you know, visibility and stuff. You do your own thing. You know, I was not doing that with some big design in mind, it just worked out that way. So you do your own stuff, you don't get very much funding, and actually I, I really got throughout all these years, I think 20 years in the research department, I got one grant, <laughs> one. But, of course, they pay for you a salary, then actually I had a few research assistants, and then essentially it was a guerrilla project because I knew lots of people in the bank and outside, and then, of course, I would ask them, oh, you got the new survey, you know, and so on. So basically that's how I created this global, uh, global income distribution the first time. So that, that's how it was done. It was not part of the World Bank. And it, it paid off for the bank because when the inequality yeah. became an issue, they could say, look, we've been working on it all this time. Yes, I think it paid off. Uh, honestly, I think it paid off more for me than for them, quite okay. to be frank, <laughs> because actually I don't think they have sufficiently used that. They got, of course, they had people, like for instance, Christopher uh, Lackner, much younger guy with whom I worked. He was actually a student of Tony Atkinson's. Then, uh, of course, Chico Ferreira, previously Peter Lanyo, they were people working on inequality, but then many of them left the bank, you know, and uh, also the bank, in my opinion, got actually, um, how should I say, a little bit behind the curve, or even, including even by the fund and the research department in the IMF. Mm. So I think the bank could have capitalized it more. And now you've reunited with Chica Ferreira here at LSE. And that's so right. The, the yeah. band is getting together again. Absolutely. So nice. I'm very much looking forward to that next Excellent. year. All right. 
<laughs> and and what's it been like? I mean, did you enjoy the ride going from sort of a, a fairly minority sure. issue to being right oh, at yeah. the center of things? Absolutely. What was it like? Oh, it was great, actually. Obviously, I enjoyed it very much. Again, you know, the, the thing is that you don't realize when the things are going on. You don't realize, obviously, which way it would go and how it is. It is basically day to day. And I remember, actually, I talked to my friends about that, my wife also. Uh, in the very beginning, you know, when the demand started really increasing, I was really basically taking up every sort of, uh, you know, every requirement, like every interview, every conversation, every conference. First, because there were relatively few before and then they increased. Secondly, my opinion then was basically it's going to be a short-term phenomenon, so just enjoy, enjoy it while it lasts. But now I'm actually quite convinced it's going to be a lot, much, much longer. And for you, did it take off with the global financial crisis or, or before yeah. that? I think it took off a little bit before that and I was, of course, involved also. By, I, I, I created quite a large uh, sort of, how should I say, uh, group of people with whom I was uh, in contact outside the bank. And it actually started for me in the early 2000s through political philosophers. That's an interesting thing. You know, people, the political philosophers were the only ones who actually thought of global inequality. In, not in an empirical sense, because they don't have the numbers, but they thought of the issues actually rose in 1999, had it in a book, you know, The Law of Peoples, where actually there are basic issues like should uh, rich people from rich countries be responsible not only for poverty, but for the overall global inequality. What should be done? Is inequality, which is due to the fact that you are a citizen of one country, I'm a citizen of another country, is that inequality justifiable? So they had these moral and general issues that they were interested. And then when they saw, they saw the stuff that I was working on empirically, uh, they were actually, they liked it very much because the first time somebody could put, a, put numbers on what they were been, they've been thinking all along. So really that was an open to me also, I mean, I learned a lot from them. So that was the beginning, that was in the early 2000s. And, and do you think inequality is, is now here for the long term as an issue, or do you think it will at some point subside as a, as a sort of public conversation? Well, at some point, obviously, I mean, we don't know what will happen in 20 years. Or, but, uh, you know, I think for a, for a foreseeable future it is here. And let me tell you why I think it is here, uh, to stay. Because... Uh, it, not only is it a politically salient issue today, but on top of that, when you look at what people do, research and stuff, uh, with big data, on which, of course, inequality studies depend, because you need really individual data and so on, uh, it, it, big data have really made a huge eruption into the world of, I think, economics on the social side, social science side, rather than the finance side. Finance side was there always with the data, but not this part. And that means that actually when I see that number of young people who are doing work on heterogeneity, because that's a big issue. And inequality by definition, that for heterogeneity is actually, you're no longer only concerned about the averages. You don't look at the representative agent, you don't look at mean income, you don't look only at the GDP per capita growth rate. You want really to see how are people affected. Even like you don't necessarily look at CPI, consumer price index alone, you say how are different components of that moving. Uh, how are the housing prices moving? Not in England in general, but like let's go London, but let's go Brighton, but let's go more or deeper. So I think this movement towards heterogeneity, which is being enabled 
by the big data, essentially, is helping tremendously studies of inequality. Because, as I said before, they're basically, by definition, studies about heterogeneity. Not your and my income overall divided by two, but your income and my income as separate incomes. So I think in, in that sense, I, I believe it is here to stay. And while we're on this, and we'll finish here and then get on to the book, but... Um, are you glad you did the elephant graph, or are you sick of the elephant graph? So you are identified <laughs> with this amazing summary of what's happened right. in the world for the last 30 years. How does it, are you, is it a, a child you love or a child you hate? No, it's a child that I love, actually. I'm, I'm very happy to have done it. I still remember the first, I honestly still remember the first time that I did it. It was 2012, and actually the first graph was drawn with um, uh, exchange rate, not with PPPs, but with the exchange, uh, uh, market exchange rates. The shape was exactly the same as what we n know now. Uh, and But, you know, I immediately... Uh, people have asked me that, did you expect to see that kind of a... I did not think much whether I should expect it or not, but if, as soon as I saw it, I knew what it meant, because it is so clear. You have really significant growth of incomes towards the middle in Asia, you had really absence of growth in the middle class in the rich countries, and you have the top 1% going back. Oh, that's fantastic. So it basically, and then we have done it, as you know, with Christoph Lackner, I've done it then later, we had very nice paper, we did it in different forms and shapes, different years and all that, and of course it survives whatever you do, that, we'll do that. However, in the future, and actually I'm doing something now, uh, the graph is not going to look like that anymore, because after the financial crisis, things have changed. Obviously, China and the middle have remained very powerful, but they are moving towards the higher parts of the income distribution. So that, that back of the, you know, the top of the, of the elephant chart is going to move more to the right, meaning towards richer segments of the distribution. We're going to need a different animal. We will have a different animal. And not only that, you know, the top 1%, which is overwhelmingly Western, has not really done very well after the crisis. So, you know, the shape of, of the curve is going to look different. So we'll, we'll have a different animal, you know. Excellent. I look forward to it. Okay, we'll have a competition <laughs> on the blog when you're ready. Um, right, let's get... So, so you talked a little bit about how important political philosophers were to you. And my impression reading the book, and I, I love the book, is that you're sort of spreading your wings in this book into political philosophy, into political science, right. and sort of moving beyond inequality sort of uh, right. as a separate issue. Is that the intention? Yes, yes, that's the intention, but it's not actually that uh, you know, intention that I, you know, developed in the last, uh, like, two or three years. You know, I always, first, I was always very much interested in social sciences in general, uh, Marxism in particular, and uh, in history. Uh, and I always was perceiving the work of inequality as essentially not really the work only with numbers. It was always, for me, honestly, from the very beginning, it was work about explaining the social structure and social changes, evolution, whatever. So I was a little bit constrained in the sense that obviously you could not write papers of that type and expect to be published in economics journals. So you basically, you know, it's like what the Poles called before the change of regime, self-limiting revolution. I was also self-limited, you know, because I would not do that. Uh, but now I really don't have to build self-limiting anymore. So you've got the platform so you can say what you want to say. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Fantastic. And you can actually oh. shape it the way that you wish. And uh, that was one of the reasons I have to say methodologically, I like very much Piketty's work from the very beginning, you know, even his earlier work before the capital in the 21st century, because he linked it very clearly with political developments. In other words, when you describe simply the data and you say, okay, well, what happened in France or the UK or the US, but don't write about 
like why did, for example, tax rates go up or why did the uh, um, uh, concentration on wealth go down? And don't talk about trade unions in those days, trade unions, socialist parties or labor parties, uh, or strikes, uh, <coughs> political disagreements and all of that. I think it's a little bit empty because really what drives inequality is really political change. Could or be, technological, you know. Could be more. <laughs> okay, so let's get on to a, a little bit about the book. Um, you talk about the global victory of capitalism, which I'm sure you've had to talk, justify or explain many yeah. times already. Um, in what sense is it a victory? Tell me about the victory. I think it's a victory in, in two different uh, ways. Uh, actually, it's in different, it's, well, actually three. But <coughs> First, it is a victory over alternative modes of production. In the past, there was a you know feudal mode, and it's not a, something that we call feudalism something we don't like. Feudalism is really technically means that you don't have free labor. And of course, in, in capitalism, you have free labor. I mean, people work, they are not tied to land, they can do whatever they want. So it's a victory over uh, that mode of production and, of course, communist mode of production or, or socialist, or whatever you want to call it. I don't want to go, I actually spent a little bit of discussion on, on the terms, but essentially over centrally planned economies with state-owned means of production. So that's the first victory over the alternatives. But moreover, it is a victory which had been translated into the spread of capitalism to four corners of the world, including to China. So, as you know, actually, I spent a whole chapter discussing China, including the fact that technically, if you look at, at whatever criteria uh, that you want to use in terms of the value added, in terms of employment and so on, you really, it is a capitalist economy. So it has really spread, and of course, after the fall of communism, it has spread to all of Eastern Europe and Russia. So it really controls, that's the second victory, controls the world geographically. The third victory, which I find very interesting, I think it's more recent, is the ability of capitalism to create new markets, which we never sort of thought of. We had markets for shoes, we had markets for water, we had stuff like that. Uh, even for water, it was relatively recent. But uh, now, the creation of new markets, which is actually where capitalist or commodification, we're being commodified in our daily activities. I find it quite extraordinary. So this is childcare, looking after your Absolutely, mom, yeah. all this kind of stuff. I look after your mom, like having the dog walkers, having people uh, cooking meals for you and bringing them, uh, having actually you making money on the internet while you're playing games. And you know, other people are making money of you, and sometimes you're making money of them. You know, I get like a, a sort of uh, announcements, like for example, on my blog, they say, well, you could have earned a small amount, $123 this year, for example. So obviously it is a machine to, to, of making money, although for me it was kind of fun to write a blog. But in reality, it is being commodified. So one day, if they write to me, you could have made, I don't know, $50,000. That's the issue. I will commodify it. And that's what I find extraordinary that capitalism has now really created these new markets. You know, if you have your own apartment and you go on vacation, what do you do? You rent it out. Uh, if you have extra time, what do you do? You have a car? Do you have a GPS stuff? Yes. Well, you're a taxi driver for two hours. So th this didn't exist 20 years ago. 
Fascinating. So that's the third victory. So everybody has their price, and now in everything. Everything, and you know, when people uh, say, "Okay, well, we would like to, you know, change capitalism," this or that, they, in my opinion, they don't fully uh, internalize the fact that they have become sort of a, a capitalist machines of production. You know, we'll be getting right about that. I'll know? be getting to yeah, that. Yeah, don't okay, worry, don't okay. worry. You're not escaping without okay, discussing okay. that. But first, before we get on to that. You, I really liked the distinction you draw between liberal and political capitalism. So liberal capitalism, yeah. US, Europe, Anglo-Saxon, the one we normally understand as capitalism, right. political capitalism, what China has come up with. Could you just briefly describe the differences and who you think is going to triumph or whether it'll be an amalgamation of the two? You know, the difference, uh, let me start with the difference. The difference, well, I don't need to define liberal capitalism very clearly. I mean, it's a capitalism that, of course, people are generally familiar with. It is a capitalism that was born in the West through basically bourgeois revolutions, transformation, and so on. Uh, but the Chinese capitalism is, di and is different, and that's why, actually, as you know, I start chapter three, where I describe Chinese capitalism by the discussion of a global uh, historical role of communist revolutions. Because I think it's interesting to draw... Uh, the distinction in the origin of Chinese capitalism from the Western capitalism, because that's the uh, the origin, in my opinion, was the success of social, in this case, so communist-led revolution, in abolishing many of the feudal institutions, including, you know, inequality of gender, inability to access education, the, all this very structural form of, you know, Confucian filial piety and all of that stuff, it was all gone. And then, of course, the Communist Revolution brought Communist Party to power, and gradually, and I think it was the cunning of history, without realization of that, China has developed a, a sort of autochthonous, indigenous capitalism, the same way that Vietnam did it as well. So the origin of the, uh, the, of, the, of the capitalism is different. Now, the definition of political capitalism comes from Max Weber, which is basically uh, uh, capitalism where the role of the state and the control of the state and ability to use the state in order to make economic gain is crucial. So in that sense, it is different from liberal capitalism that in principle is a capitalism that is where uh, economic activity and wealth creation uh, are dominant and when you become politically influential, and that's of course the problem of plutocracy, by using wealth, leveraging wealth for, to get political power. In political capitalism, I think you do the opposite. You leverage political power in order to get wealth. Mm -hmm. and, and the future for both as they lock horns now increasingly? I, uh, you know, the, one of the reasons why I wrote it the way that I did is because I wanted to distinguish my opinion very clearly from those people who believed, and some of them still tend to believe, that we will end up in the world with only one model, political model of capitalism. So it would be liberal capitalist model, you know, large middle class and so on. This is the Asimoglu and Robinson. This is Asimoglu Robinson. This yeah. is also Fukuyama. This is, I think, actually a very special reading of history, <coughs> which <coughs> sees really kind of... Uh, the terminus of history to have really arrived in, you know, on the whatever, 8th of November of uh, 1989, that's it, you know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, everybody is going to be exactly the same, the same system. It's, I think it was um, wrong then, I think it's wrong now, and I think it's wrong then to, to visualize the evolution of Chinese political capitalism necessarily towards liberal. Which doesn't mean that it's not, it's not impossible, but you can have very, various possibilities. You can actually have both of them becoming a converging in the sense that both of them become plutocracies de facto, 
which of course the, the Western system is moving towards then, and the Chinese could be as well moving. So they could converge, but they could converge on a sort of a plutocratic capitalism, which would not be liberal or democratic, or it would be falsely democratic, but de facto plutocratic. So, you know, there, there, there are many possibilities. Another possibility is, of course, that China, because of its economic success, uh, would create a number of, um, how should they say, uh, imitators. And we have seen that already in Africa with, for example, Ethiopia, Rwanda being, I actually mentioned that, being similar. You can even see Algeria as being originally, I mean, by origins, very similar in that same respect to China. I'm actually surprised there are more imitators. Well, uh, uh, probably because, of course, it is relatively new. And then secondly, China has really so far not tried very much. Uh, I discussed that, as you know, also in the book, it has not tried very much to export this mm. model. Mm. And there may be historical reasons for what is called, uh, I think Arigi called it China's, uh, 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 or Martin Jacques also, I think, China's aloofness. Uh, so, you know, there may be reasons for that. Uh, but, you know, there, there are a number of other countries that could potentially become Chinese, uh, uh, or should I say, Chinese, China-inspired, let's put it okay. like that. Now, let's get on to something which I think the book doesn't talk about, mm -hmm. but I think should, okay? okay? Which I'm, uh, this will not surprise you. So, there's no reference in the book to planetary boundaries to you yeah. talk about the futures of capitalism but you don't talk about the carrying capacity of the earth right. you 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 don't talk about open systems closed systems and when you talk about the there's a short section on the environment but it's a kind of 1970s discussion on whether resources will be exhausted or not yes, yeah. what was your thinking about not addressing the planetary boundaries question no it is a good question as you said i'm not surprised because you're not uh, <laughs> the first to have asked I'm me sure, that i'm sure uh, I, uh, you know, my answer is the following. First of all, this is really a topic that I know much less about. I, uh, as I said before, you know, this, this is a book that was written basically quickly, you know, because it's based on, honestly, to be quite honest, like on years and years of, of reading and, and writing and stuff. So, uh, so it's like a download of your it's own a down, exactly. thinking. Okay. Exactly. It's really a download. Uh, but I didn't have uh, either knowledge or original thinking on, uh, on planetary bounds, on environment and so on. Uh, that's the first, really, the, the, real, the real reason. But the second reason is that I am, maybe because precisely I have not uh, uh, absorbed the knowledge on that sufficiently, I am a, a technological optimist. I do believe that actually they, they will be able, with incentives, and with technological change to actually to if not to solve the problem but to avoid these apocalyptic visions that the people have so these are the two reasons you know lack of knowledge and uh, fundamental technological optimism so i get from your i, I i'm going to leave that there i'll reference the debate between you and kate rayworth and things because i think it's really fascinating but that was a very good good response i thought um interesting that you talk about technological optimism because my impression is that you are a technological optimist but actually a bit of a political pessimist in mm, that you, you've got this very pessimistic view that commodification is inevitable and inexorable. Is that, is that a fair description of where you're coming from? Absolutely. It is absolutely a fair description. I'm a technological optimist, as, as I said and you said, uh, but I am pessimistic about uh, political developments and also I'm pessimistic about our own, and I know that you would want to ask me about that, our own ability to withstand the social pressure and the value system that is actually undergirding and underlying capitalism, which is the system of 
um, money acquisition at practically every cost, at all costs. So it's really like a top one. So I'm very pessimistic that we are, as individuals, would be able to withstand that and to go kind of sort of away from it. And, Do you think yeah. that's partly influenced by your own personal background? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're coming from the uh, from former Yugoslavia, you saw the Eastern yeah, Bloc collapse. Do you think that's affected a your A little view? bit, but I don't think that much, because when I see people, uh, you know, everywhere, and after all, I've lived in the United States more than 30 years, and I see how, although oftentimes they don't want to acknowledge that, but how really their decisions on many things are really essentially driven by, obviously, self-interest and money, very, very strongly. And uh, when I then see the same people in um, sort of scholarly debates negating that, I just see there's such a contrast between their own behavior uh, and, and what they're saying. And I think that in some sense it's more hidden in Western societies, maybe there is a larger element of hypocrisy in them as well, but it's more hidden because they're been <clears throat> old rich societies and you have learned to kind of camouflaged it a little bit. When you go to Eastern Europe, when you go to China, when you go to India, it's not as camouflaged. People just celebrate. They just, they like to put it in your face. They are going to run, to run a Rolls Royce over you, you know, and feel good about it. And so that's why I see it all around the world. So late, late hypocrisy is characterized by, hip, uh, late capitalism is characterized by hypocrisy. Yes, but you know, I think a more significant element because people having been wealthy for quite some time, they have learned that it's actually not maybe uh, desirable socially to flaunt it in such an obvious way. But you know, the, the new, uh, oh, this, this book like uh, Crazy Rich Asians, you know, or you take Russia, they, they flaunt it. Mm -hmm. And but you know I'm not saying that's my, my point. I'm not uh, sort of criticizing them and say they are fundamentally different from people in London who don't flaunt it as much. I think it's very similar. There are a group of, of people who have been late capitalists, but more sophisticated. But de facto, it's very similar. So that's my my view. Okay, Branko Milanovic. Uh, I wish we could carry on all day, but you've got things to do, and uh, that's been absolutely fantastic. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. These were really such great questions. You know that that I mean you cannot go wrong with questions like that. Okay. Thank you so much. And I want everybody to read Branko Milanovic, Capitalism Alone. I'll put a link up on the blog. <coughs> Thank you.